thanks so much for the invitation to come here. And it's been such a joy to see so many familiar faces and that I wasn't expecting to see. Yeah, so it's that small Catholic world. Okay, so um, I was asked to speak about Thomas Aquinas on predestination, and that's too big. So I hope you um, weren't expecting something that I'm not going to give. Um, so it's basically impossible to give a talk on. And the reason for this is so many principles intersect in this. So I'm just going to speak about one aspect of the problem, um, which is the second half of the title, the distinction between operative and cooperative grace and um, um, what I hope you'll come to see is that this distinction enables us to balance the other parts of the problem that we need to keep in balance. Right? And so this has been a, a, a problem, obviously, that's generated opposite heresies, right? So Pelagianism on one side, um, Luther, Calvinism, and Jansenism on the opposite side. But even inside the church, it generated an intractable dispute that I'm sure you've heard about, the De Auxilis controversy, pitting Jesuits against Dominicans, um, and never resolved, and they were just both sides told to shut up and, and not treat about grace. Um, and so what this shows us is that this is a nodal problem. In other words, it's a knot. And um, in a knot, you want to look at what are the key principles and how to keep balance so we don't fall off the Lutheran, Calvinist, Jansenist side or the Pelagian side on the other. All right, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this distinction and we're gonna look at three other principles that we have to keep in mind. And those are um, the priority of grace, that'll be our first, human free cooperation, free will, um, the second, and then God's um, universal salvific will, the third. All right, and so my thesis is that this distinction, which I'm gonna explain, between operative, two kinds of grace, operative and cooperative, helps us to keep the other elements in balance. So the first principle is the, um, is the primacy of grace, right? So um, God has predestined, has, well, let's say simply destined mankind to a supernatural end. Right? So that's our starting point. God has freely wanted to and give us a share of his own beatitude, and that's infinitely disproportionate to human nature or even angelic nature, any finite nature, any created nature. Right? And so a supernatural end, and really, again, the word doesn't do justice, it's infinitely um, supernatural. Um, and therefore, if he wants to get us there, He's got to send us, as it were, right? And that's why the primacy of grace is the first principle here. Right? And so St. Thomas, when he treats predestination, and I'm just going to talk about one article, and it's from the first part, question 23, article 1, in which he introduces the question. He uses this magnificent analogy of an archer, right? God is the archer, and we're the arrows, and the beatific vision is the bullseye, the target. Right? And we're arrows that can't possibly get to the bullseye by ourselves, and so we're never going to get there if God doesn't shoot us to that bullseye. Right? So that's, and he shoots us by preparing a series of graces. Right? So the, grace, the graces that he prepares for us is the bow. Right? He's the archer. I don't know. Maybe that's... Um, and... Um, and that's what we mean by predestination. It's the preparing beforehand, in other words, from all eternity, a series of aids that are supernatural by which we can arrive at our supernatural end, the target. All right? And so predestination, a preparation of this series of graces is absolutely necessary for us to attain to the end. Right? And these graces, we can distinguish um, actual graces, right? So again, key thing in, in understanding is to make distinctions, right? And so grace can be subdivided into different kinds. And the first sub distinction would be actual graces, which are impulses or movements from God to us, moving our spiritual faculties, right? To act above their own level. Um, and so actual graces illuminate our intellect to see something, right? And so even to have faith requires actual grace illuminating our intellect and, um, and attracting our will, and that's even the more important part. Um, 
And so actual grace does both of those things, illuminating and attracting, um, so that we can then move. And so that's what we're going to talk about more in a minute. And then sanctifying grace is a habit. Right? It's, it elevates us on the level of being, whereas actual graces elevate us on the level of action. Right? And we need to be elevated in both. And we, if we're an adult, right? so I was um, brought up an atheist and um, had a conversion experience as an adult. And what, what that means is, we have to, re so my wife and I re together went through this conversion experience. So that involves receiving many actual graces before we actually first then come to believe, right? Inquire about the RCA program and end up getting baptized and confirmed and receiving the Eucharist, right? So in others, there are many actual graces that precede the actual receiving of sanctifying grace, right? And God has prepared these graces for us from all eternity. Right? And then once we're justified, we need more graces to continue to act in the supernatural level right? and to persevere till the end and to grow. Right? So our, the whole of the Christian life is our um, receiving of graces and on their basis, right, growing in um, faith, hope, and charity. Right, second principle, we're free arrows. Right? And obviously this is what makes this difficult. So God has prepared this series of graces. He's shooting us to the end. Um, but we, as free arrows, right, can cooperate or deviate um, from that trajectory that he's sent us on. Right? And so um, there's another a key. So in, if the first one, the primacy of, of grace, is that um, action follows on being, right? So God has to give us, elevate our being so that we can act to this supernatural end. Our second principle is that everything is received. I hope you've heard this principle before. Everything is received according to the mode of the recipient, right? The receiver, right? So St. Thomas uses both of these principles all the time. Action follows on being, and everything is received, is received according to the mode of the receiver. So we're free agents, right? By being rational animals, right? And by having reason, we're, we have freedom. And therefore, um, grace is received according to the mode of the recipient, um, and thus our mode being free, all right? Um, and Saint, I won't go into it, but St. Thomas demonstrates our freedom, right, in numerous articles, um, coming from our rationality. In other words, our rationality, seeing the different options by which we can get to our naturally desired ends, we're free to choose between them, right? And that's why we're not predetermined, because we're rational. Um, and he considers a denial of free will to be not just an ordinary mistake. It's a mistake that puts you out of bounds, with regard to moral philosophy, right? Because moral philosophy is all about, um, for example, um, praise, blame, responsibility. And so denying freedom would annihilate the whole moral realm, right? And so it's um, a foundational error out of bounds. Okay, so if we go back to our archery analogy, an ordinary arrow will hit the target, right? If it's shot rightly by an expert arrow, but also, um, it needs to be not defective, right? The arrow, if the arrow is damaged, even the finest archer, I suppose, could fail to hit the target, right, if the arrow breaks. Um, and so, since we're free arrows, right, that's the second part of the equation. We have to cooperate with that trajectory to get to the target, right? So God's plan makes it possible for us to, to get to the target, but to get there, if we get to the, right, for the baby, it's different. The baby who gets baptized and dies um, didn't get a real chance to cooperate, um, because, but he was entrusted to others as parents who did cooperate. Um, in the case of all of us who've gotten to the age of reason, right, we can't get to the target unless we cooperate with the plan. And our very cooperation, of course, is made possible by his prior gift. Right? So we got the priority of grace, but then the necessity of our cooperating after we received the initial grace. Right? And that, too, will be a graced cooperation. All right? So you can see where I'm going with this. So let's look now at this distinction of two kinds of actual grace. This could also be applied to sanctifying, but I'm going to limit it here to actual, two kinds of actual grace. And that's 
operative and cooperative. And this is going to be developing the first two things that we've said. So God's grace has a primacy. We have to receive it um, prior to our action. That's going to be operative. But we need to cooperate with it. That's going to be um, grace now cooperating with our free will. And so this is a distinction of two kinds of operative grace, or better, a distinction of two effects of grace. An initial attraction that we didn't do anything about getting, but came to us when we were not seeking. And then once we're moved to seek by that first grace, now we can cooperate. And so it's really the same grace, but playing out with two different effects. Now, normally when people distinguish kinds of grace, kinds of actual grace, they use a different distinction that probably you're familiar with, and that is sufficient and efficacious, right? So this is the standard way that um, grace is spoken of. A sufficient grace would be one that's able to bring us toward salvation, but maybe won't actually bring us there, whereas an efficacious grace is one to, that actually brings us um, to a salvific act, right? So that's the normal way actual graces are distinguished from the 16th century. But that's not the way St. Thomas does it, and I think for very good reasons. And part of the reason is that kind of distinction leaves unexplained why, um, why this second grace is efficacious and the first. Um, and so St. Thomas divides differently. He divides in this category that I just mentioned, operative and cooperative. And he receives this from St. Augustine. So some of you in um, second theology, uh, second uh, um, year are reading the, the works of, is that in the spring? Anyway, um, it's in the late Augustine um, against the Pelagian heresy from grace and free will. And he, he says it like this, so I'm gonna quote. He who first works in us the power to will, to will supernaturally, right, by grace, is the same one who cooperates in bringing this work to perfection in those who will it, right? So God's grace has two tasks, as it were. The first is to get our attention and attract the will to something it wasn't yet attracted to, salvation and particular salvific goods. But once we're attracted, that's not the end of the story, right? We have to then work towards those things by actually doing things, right? So no one gets converted just by desire, and that desire has to translate it into, say, um, seeking out the RCA, praying, going to confession, receiving the sacraments, um, reading good books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so um, two different tasks of grace there. He, so continuing with St. Augustine, God then works in us without our cooperation first, the power to will, to will something supernatural, right? Because that's above us. He's got to elevate us to that. But once we begin to will, and do so in a way that brings us to act, then it is that he cooperates with us. That's, did you hear that right? Who cooperates with who? St. Augustine says God's grace is now cooperating with our will because once we will an end, we can then move ourselves to choose the means, right? So when we make it, we're self-movers, human beings, through free self-movers, and it, our free self-movement works like this. We desire an end, and therefore we will to deliberate about the means to attain the end. And our desire for the end is moving our deliberation, right? It's motivating our deliberation. And then that deliberation is moving um, the will to choose and consent to something that we've deliberated about as good, right? And so we're self-movers, and the, the motor is the desire for the end. God's grace first enkindles that desire for the end, and we call that operative grace. He's operating, and we're just receiving. But once he's operated in that way to attract us to the end, we're now involved because I want that end, and therefore I want to deliberate about the means to that end, and I want to choose this means. I never would want that if he weren't still right now working in me that I continue to desire the end and aiding me to choose apt means for that end. Right? And that's what we're going to call cooperative grace. Right? So it's, it's really the same grace, but doing two things. First, attracting me to the end, 
And then because I'm attracted to the end, making possible a real cooperation between me and that grace in choosing a means that's hopefully apt for that end. Right? And so we can call that second effect of grace cooperative grace. And it's both things are true. We're cooperating with the grace. That would be the natural way to think about it. But as St. Augustine says, in some way, the grace is cooperating with our free will also. And so this is the distinction that St. Thomas makes in the Summa when he divides different kinds of graces, not into sufficient efficacious, but into operative. That's also called prevenient. You know, prevenient simply means comes before anything that we do, exciting us towards something that, right? And so anyone who's an adult convert knows what this is about, right? Because what I was not desiring previously, I came to desire on a, at a certain time, right? And how did that happen? I, I didn't bring that into being, right? That was, that, so that would be an example of an operative grace. And I think we've all had experiences of that in our lives, where we're touched in a way that we can say, I, that, that happened to me, but I didn't bring that about. But once that happens, now I've got a responsibility, right? And I've got a capacity, a capacity to cooperate with that good desire that needs to go forward and in going forward, there still has to be a grace supporting it, right? And we're going to call that cooperative grace. Right? So cooperative grace presupposes a prior goodwill um, in the soul brought about by the operative grace. So let's set, let me just read how St. Thomas speaks about this. So this is in the Treatise on Grace in the Summa. That's the Prima Secundae, question 111, Article 2, right? So that's what this whole talk is on. And he says here, hence, in that effect which are, in which our mind is moved and doesn't move, in other words, we're moved by God and we're not moving ourselves yet, God is the sole mover. That operation is attributed to God, right, to God alone, and it is ref with reference to this that we speak of operating grace, right? So an example of this might be the aha moment. Ah, um, so let me just give an example of this. So in, in my conversion, um, I'd been uh, raised as an atheist, right? so lived 29 years as an atheist, and um, even though there were a lot of things, right? so I'd fall in love with Christian art, we were living in Italy, we were in churches all the time to see art, and we'd leave when there was a mass, um, but um, none of that was sufficient. <laughs> but what happened was my wife got pregnant, right? and part of it, so that was a little prelude, I realized I didn't have anything to pass on, a conviction about the world. But then more seriously, my wife had this very serious um, anxiety and um, in the pregnancy about six months into it. And, one, and it got so bad, one day she said she didn't want to live. And it hit me that day, my goodness, I'm not able to love her the way she needs to be loved. Um, I can't do that. But yet, life would be absurd if there weren't someone who did. And that that must be God. And I, that's an example of something that I didn't do, right? In other words, that happened in me um, that I didn't bring about by any prior habit of, you know, I hadn't read St. Thomas, I hadn't, um, um, so, and there are many things, that, I mean, um, St. Paul's experience right on the road to Damascus was clearly also an operative grace. Something happened in him in which his prior activity wasn't involved, right? It wasn't brought about by his doing, but by God's action, to see something that one hadn't seen. But that's not the whole thing, right? Because if one could simply, it could end there. Ah, there must be a God. But then there's got to be a second step. Um, I have to seek him, right? And so the, that's the key thing. The will gets attracted. I have to ask him to teach me, right? To teach me to love, etc. And it's that second step where grace is touching the will, Right? and giving the will a new attraction that it didn't have before. Right? So that's all operative grace. All right, let's go back to Texas St. Thomas here, sorry. But in that effect, in which our mind both moves and is moved, the operation is not attributed only to God, but also to the soul. Right? And so what would be an example of that? All right, what do I do now? Well, maybe I should go to church and pray. Um, and I have to choose what church. All right, I'm living in... in Italy, I'll go to Florence and pray in the Duomo, 
or something like that. And, um, and so that's going to be some cooperative grace. Am I actually going to get there? Am I going to do it? Kneeling down, I'm looking around, feeling like I'm doing something crazy, um, etc. And so that would be an example of cooperative grace. But what often happens in conversion experiences is there's an alternation, right? So all right, I do something, and then another thing comes from above that we weren't expecting. Right? I left Christ out of the picture, and I make my first prayer, and another... Anyway, sorry to make this so personal. But the point is, that's how God works in us, right? There are certain times in which he's doing something that we didn't bring about, but then on the basis of that, there are a lot of things that, that we can then do that he's continuing to support by his grace. And we're really self-movers in those things, and those are really important, right? Um, for getting to our end. So we call that cooperative grace. St. Thomas, when he, um, and he says it's here, we can speak of um, God moving and the soul moving. So the action isn't attributed to God alone, but to God in cooperation with the soul, right? In cooperative grace. But in operative grace, it's God alone, okay? And in our lives, both things are gonna have to happen, right? Without that first movement, nothing's gonna follow. But without that second movement, we're not gonna get to the end in a way proper to a human being. And that's by free actions made possible by grace. So St. Thomas illustrates this by distinguishing um, the, ex the interior act and the exterior act. Right? So the interior act would be, besides saying, ah, seeing something, there is a God who's made my wife and who loves her. And then and I should ask him uh, to teach me to do that. All right, so that would be the, and then um, there'll be an exterior action, and that's actually going to pray and carrying through on it, right? Um, and so that would be an example of cooperative grace, when we do the exterior action made possible by God having done in us the interior action. Now, I don't want to imply that it's only exterior actions that are cooperative, because even something like deliberation is, has to do with cooperative grace, right? Because deliberation is precisely how we start to move forward freely, and then what we choose on the basis of that, okay? So, operative grace is by itself efficacious. It doesn't fail, right? When God makes you see something that you weren't seeing before, right? And this can happen to anyone, right? So there are stories about Voltaire, you know, on his deathbed or, or seriously ill and being hit by a grace like this. So it, operative grace is always efficacious by its nature to produce the first effect that you saw something, right? Conscience was touched. The will was attracted. But what's not necessarily efficacious is what comes next, right? And this is because del deliberation intervenes. And in that deliberation, I can consider not only the attraction of grace, right? But also the attraction of my, let's say, bad habits. In other words, the habitual ends that I had in my previous life sought, right? And in our deliberation, the deliberation can end um, choosing a means that favors the attraction of grace, or as we all know, choosing a means that maybe I want to think does that, but I'm choosing it because it's favoring some attraction of my past, say, sinful attachment, could be. Or even, maybe not directly sinful, but worldly attachment, right? And so this is why grace, or how grace can be resisted. The operative grace isn't resisted, because it's efficacious, that's God working directly, and I'm not working, I'm receiving. But in the co cooperative stage, right, for it, St. Thomas says it's attributed to both God and the soul, and that's where we can cooperate or fail to cooperate. And even in our cooperation, we cooperate in different ways, right? Precisely through our free deliberation, by which we choose this aspect or that aspect um, to seek first, etc. So let's look at scripture for a minute and how it um, bears this out. So, for example, Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, well, the, um, John sees Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Right. Jesus standing at the door knocking, what kind of grace is that? Operative or cooperative? 
operative, all right? But, right, um, if he opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. Opening the door is cooperative, right? And it's, it's precisely an if, yeah. Right, and so many, I mean, that's just one chosen practically randomly. So many texts of scripture give us this same pattern, right? And John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right, so the first thing has got to be the drawing. No one can come unless we're first drawn. But that we actually come would be cooperative, right? So the drawing is operative and the actually coming in terms of actual action that one has to deliberate about doing or not doing, that would be cooperative. In other words, the movement begun by operative grace is meant to pass into cooperative grace, right? So it's, it's we're, this is a scholastic distinction, a blackboard distinction. In real life, it's a unitary process, but it's really important to distinguish the two actions, the two effects of grace there, precisely so we can see where resistance can enter in and where cooperation um, can um, further the movement of the, the effect of that initial grace. And so again, going back to the archery, the, the arrow can be expertly shot, but if it's defective, it'll fail to um, arrive because the arrow has to cooperate in some way, right? By not falling apart or whatever. In our case, by freely continuing that impulse. So a classic text from the Psalms is, um, Harden not your hearts, right, as at Meribah, as in the day of Masa in the wilderness. Right? So that's constantly, Scripture is giving us that exhortation to not harden. Um, and that's, it's not, the exhortation isn't receive operative grace, right? God can't exhort us to do that because that's his action. But when he exhorts us not to harden the heart, right, we're being exhorted to cooperate with that action, right? That's our, what is ours, or another um, parable um, on this is, um, uh, so Jeremiah 17, 23. God complains, the Israelites did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. All right? So there's an initial hearing, but then there can be a stiffening that is ours. So we can, with regard to operative grace, we can say who can resist his will. Right? That happens whether we want it or no. But with regard to cooperative, yes, that's where we can resist his will. And maybe the best um, scriptural text of all about this is the sower. Right? So think that the sower sows the seed and um, it falls where it falls, right? And it falls pretty much everywhere, right? And all the different kinds of soil, including the road, which, and we think what a crazy sower wastes his seed on the road. But it, right, that's, that's important in the parable. It falls everywhere, right? But not everywhere does cooperation follow. So on that, that falls on the road, no cooperation follows, right? Because pretty quickly it's eaten up by birds. So it, it maybe stays for a few minutes and then is taken away before it sinks in at all, right? Second kind of soil, right? The rocky soil, the, the seed has an effect, right? It, is, it enters into the ground and it gives rise to, um, right, to buds, to, to life, but um, it has no roots and is burnt out. Right, by the heat of the day. So there was a, some cooperation, but not continued cooperation. All right, this, the seed that lands in the thorns, it grows even more, but gets choked out right, by sinful attachment. So what Jesus is indicating here is precisely what are the things that block right, that initial operative grace that's successful for its first effect from producing the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, et cetera, the successive effects. Um, and that is, um, right, in the case where it's actually taken fruit, fear and attachment. And where it doesn't even take fruit at all, right, uh, um, a completely worldly attitude that doesn't take seriously, right, the grace received. But in the good soil, right, it brings fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And even that difference is interesting, right, because that, too, is pointing out different good soils, right? So the different disposition of, of even of the good soils makes a difference in the fruitfulness, right? And we all know this. this is why in heaven, there is everyone in heaven has a different degree of glory, right? There are no two in heaven. So just as we're all different in our faces and personalities um, on earth, in heaven, we'll be different in um, the degrees of glory, 
right? And nobody will be unhappy, right? This is the famous um, question of Saint Therese when she was four to her sister. How are the saints in heaven who are lower than other saints, right? Not unhappy. Um, each one is full, but each one is full, right? According to their own level. Um, and so that's, um, all right. So we can see from this that cooperative grace can be resisted and can be cooperated with and can co be cooperated with more or less. Right? And that's why the Christian life always involves both of these aspects, the primacy of grace, but the importance of a true um, cooperation with grace. Okay. Um, now, St. Thomas I mean, um, considers um, the question of whether in um, predestination is certain, certainly produces its effect, right? And we can, so based on what I've just said, there would be a big um, uh, objection that one could raise. It would seem that preparing this series of graces wouldn't obtain its effect with certainty because we can resist not the operative grace, but the cooperative stage of it. So how is predestination certain if we can resist each individual um, grace in the, um, in the cooperative movements? Right? And so St. Thomas answers this in a curious way. He says, well, it's similar to how a species survives and doesn't go extinct. Right? God wants to preserve a species. And he does this not by preserving, not by making the individual members of a species immortal. Right? They all die, every single one of them. But the species survives because of the whole, right? If this one fails, this one continues, right? By reproduction, et cetera. And so he compares the action of grace to that. Um, so let me read this. A single effect may be attained only as the result of the convergence of many contingent causes, each individual, individually capable of failure. But each one of these causes has been ordained by God either to bring about that effect itself, if another cause should fail, or to prevent that other cause from failing. Right? And so and he makes here the, the analogy of the species. And he says something similar happens in predestination. For even though free will can fail with respect to salvation in each individual, in cooperating with each individual grace, and we look at our life and we see lots of times when each one of us has done that. All right, maybe I shouldn't speak for everybody, but... Um, <laughs> So even though free will can fail in a particular case, right, by that operative grace not getting its, its desired effect of conversion, God has prepared, thanks be to God, other graces <laughs> later on in life, right? So I just think of so many examples in my life. So as an atheist, um, my wife and I went to, um, we were living in Germany for a junior year abroad, and um, we took a trip to Paris, and then to, we went to Chartres Cathedral on Christmas Day. And so we get there, and it's the afternoon. The cathedral's empty, except for monks, monks in the back chanting the divine office because it's you know, Christmas uh, dinner. And so, um, and it would, I, I mean, that would be something that would have converted the most hard-hearted atheist except for us. Um, and, and so we, all of us looking at our lives, see many times, right, where we can see grace was knocking, but I didn't enter. And I, grace really was knocking, right? But I didn't follow through. And then there are other times where grace knocked, right? Maybe a little harder. And I did enter. And this is a, a beautiful example of how we hang together. In other words, um, this is why there's intercession in the church, right? We intercede with God so that he send more operative graces, right? So again, a beautiful example of this from St. Therese in her story of a soul. I don't know if um, so she recounts, so this, she's before she, she enters the comment, she's about 14, and she hears about this hardened murderer who was unrepentant and refused to go to, even to confession, and he was about to be executed. And so she did this prayer campaign, she got everyone, she knew to, to pray for Francini, I think his name was. And he went up to the scaffold unrepentant, refused confession even on that day, but at the last moment, now she was praying in particular by the five wounds of Christ. And, um, and what does he do? Just at the last minute before he's guillotined, he asks for a cross, a crucifix, and kisses the five wounds, um, and then is executed, right? And so St. Therese, um, so, what are we, so what is St. Therese doing there? She's asking for more operative graces to be super abundantly showered upon him. All right, are we changing the plan of God? St. Thomas addresses that question. We're not changing it. It's from all eternity. He's so disposed the causes that this effect 
of conversion of Francini be, um, come about through St. Therese's um, imploring of um, new graces for him. Right? And so all of us are co-responsible in this way for each other. And this also explains why it is that sometimes intercession is not successful tragically, right? So we all have had experience of that as well, right? Where a prayer campaign is done for someone who doesn't show any signs of conversion. Right? And tragically, this can happen in our families sometimes, right? And St. Thomas also has an explanation for that, right? It's not that um, the prayers of the faithful weren't heard. We should think that God absolutely heard the, the prayers of all those imploring grace for someone. But St. Thomas simply says that sometimes it's the, the conversion isn't granted on account of some obstacle on the part of the person for whom we're praying. Right? So if we have masses said for the conversion of, I don't know, let's say masses were said for the conversion of Hitler, for example. Right? Those masses are imploring grace from God. And we should think that perhaps Graces, even though obviously he doesn't deserve it, graces are given through the mass offered. But for them to have an effect, right, in terms of salvation, it's not enough that there be an operative grace given, but that there be cooperation with that. And that also depends on the person's freedom for whom we're praying. Right? And so this is also why we offer many masses for intentions and not just one, many rosaries, etc. Right? And that we're taught continually to pray with perseverance. All right, let's look now at the, the last element to keep in mind in this problem, and that is God's universal salvific will. And this also is a biblical truth. And St. Paul in first letter to Timothy, two, chapter two, verse four, says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so that's a revealed truth. And the reason for this, um, so he says, prayers are to be made for all men, and the reason is because Christ died for all. Right? So not only does he will them to be saved, but he's done an action. Dying, do we have a crucifix here? That I'm, um, dying on Calvary, um, precisely, to bring about that effect. Right? So God has done something tremendously weighty for um, the salvation of all. And it's actually a heresy. It's a Jansenist Calvinist Jansenist heresy to deny that Christ has died for all, right? So that was one of the five Jansenist propositions condemned in the 17th century as part of the Jansenist heresy, all right? So God truly wills all beings, all human beings to be saved, but of course we know that that doesn't mean that all human beings are saved. I don't, that, I don't want to get into that question, but it um, seems reasonable to think that there are, in fact, not just one or two, but tragically, more who are not saved. And it seems that Judas was not saved from the way that Jesus speaks about him, right? He says that it would be better for him, for that man, right, if he had never been born. And he wouldn't say that about anyone who did convert and get to heaven. But be that as may, how can we reconcile those two things, right? Our distinction of operative and cooperative grace, I think, enables us to do so. Right? God wills all men to be saved, and he does something. He dies for them on the cross, and he gives them some of the fruit that is the graces that he merited on Calvary for all. But that doesn't, if we're an adult, right? if we're a baby, yes, getting baptized, and we die in that state, that will produce our salvation. But if we get to the age of reason, we're saved according to our mode of being, and that is freely, and therefore um, we can refuse to cooperate, right? And so that's how God can, on one hand, will that all be saved, and on the other hand, um, not all actually be saved. Now, St. Augustine, um, sorry, I'm going to scandalize you here, I think gave an unsatisfactory explanation of this text of um, 1 Timothy 2.4, right? So he didn't see how to... Um, how God could truly be willing the salvation of all men if not all men are, in fact, saved. And so he interpreted this, I think, unsatisfactorily to mean that God wills to save all the predestined. And that's the meaning of the all there. But I don't think that that's a fair reading of the text. 
he wills all men to be saved, not just the predestined to be saved. And another explanation was that he wills um, some of all classes of men to be saved. Um, and so it's all classes. In other words, some Greeks and some Jews and some you know, Arabs and some, and some men and some women, some babies and some adults, etc. Um, but again, that doesn't seem to do justice to the universality of the salvific will. And I think a much better explanation of this text is, was given some three centuries later um, by St. John Damascene. And it's the distinction you've, some of you, I hope, have heard of between God's antecedent and his consequent will. Right? And so the idea would be um, God wills. So let me give an example from human affairs. Um, a merchant um, has his cargo on a boat, right? And he wants that cargo to be sold and make a profit. But a tempest comes up, and in order to save the lives of everyone on the boat, you have to take the merchandise and throw it overboard. All right. The antecedent will was that that merchandise not be thrown overboard. But given this tempest, um, the consequent will in these particular circumstances is that it be thrown overboard. Right? And so St. John Damascene applies, or another example would be a judge. The judge doesn't want to execute anyone, right? antecedent will. But this man, after he's been proven guilty, right, um, the judge wills that he get the just penalty. Right? That's the consequent will. Right? So if we apply that to God and salvation, God wills all men to be saved, antecedent will. But consequent will, he wills those who have resisted the action of his grace obstinately, culpably to the end, not to be saved. Right? And that's a consequent will, consequent on our lack of cooperation to the end. Okay? So John Damascene says this, God antecedently wills all men to be saved and to attain to his kingdom. He did not form us to be chastised, but because he is good that we might share in his goodness. Yet because he is just, he doesn't wish, um, he does wish to punish sinners. So the first is called antecedent will and approval, and it has God as its cause. The second is called consequent will and permission, and it has our, ourselves as its cause. That is a partial cause, right? In other words, our non-cooperation would be um, the cause on our part for um, reprobation, according to St. John Damascene. All right? And so St. Thomas, when he deals with this question, he gives St. Augustine's two answers, as possible, but then he gives as his third um, choice um, St. John Damascene's distinction of the antecedent and consequent will. And he comments, thus it is clear that whatever God simply wills takes place, but the simple will is the consequent will because that's taking into account the real conditions. The antecedent will is abstracting from our real resistance or our real cooperation. Right? And so the, the consequent will is the, we could say, the real will that's taken everything into account and therefore taken our um, cooperation or the lack thereof into account. Okay? So St. Thomas asks in, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, he has a question where he asks, how is it just that God reprobates sinners for not having grace? When grace is gratuitous and only he can give it, how does he reprobate those who don't have Right? So that, I mean, that's a dogma of faith. Those who die without sanctifying grace right, can't get to heaven. But if sanctifying grace is his gift, how is that just that um, he reprobate those who die without what is his to give? And St. Thomas' answer is, since basically it's not absurd for God to reprobate those who don't have grace because those who end up without grace end up without grace, right, because they've culpably resisted what they were given, right, which was the operative grace that could have moved them to salvation if they had cooperated. So he says this, since this ability to impede or not to impede the reception of divine grace is it within the scope of free choice, not undeservedly, is responsibility for the fault imputed to him who offers an impediment to the reception of grace. In fact, as far as he's concerned, God is ready to give grace to all. Indeed, he wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4.
But those alone are deprived of grace who offer an obstacle within themselves to grace. Just as while the sun is shining in the world, the man who keeps his eyes closed is held responsible for his evil if he trips, right? Because he had his eyes closed. Right? So I think the distinction we can see here, the distinction between operative and cooperative grace is crucial for understanding this central mystery of how reprobation is possible, right? And God is not responsible um, for um, the reprobating, but the sinner, right, is responsible. Okay. Now this has undergone, so here, one of the things that makes theology difficult is that theology does develop in time, right? In other words, Christ has revealed the fullness of truth, but that fullness of truth has to be received, right? And so go back to our axiom, everything is received according to the mode of the receiver, and the mode of human beings is progressive, and so these truths are progressively internalized and thought about, and that's what makes reading, right, and the history of theology and philosophy so exciting, right, is to see precisely that development taking place where further insights are seen on the result of these principles, right? And so that's, um, right, to see something like, I don't know, for me, John Damascene's distinction there, and to, and to Seton Will and Consequent, that's beautiful, or St. Augustine's and St. Thomas' distinction, operative and cooperative grace, or even actual and sanctifying grace. It's those distinctions that make possible a new development. Well, this subject of the universal salvific will has been one of the most interesting developments in the history of the church, right? So it's, it's present from the beginning. It's part of revealed truth, right? 1 Timothy 2.4. But at the same time, um, it seems hard to reconcile that with God's sovereignty, right? And that's what St. Augustine wrestled with. And then certain distinctions aid that. St. John Damascene plays a role. St. Thomas develops it further, I think, with highlighting cooperative grace and it's the ability to resist grace. And God can still achieve his effect because more graces are prepared, etc. cetera. Um, and then a further development happens at the time of the Reformation, right? And so very often development of doctrine is fueled precisely by heresy. It's really interesting because the heresy requires... Um, the saints, right, the, the theologians and philosophers, to think more deeply how to answer the heresy. And so at the time of the Reformation, you got Luther and Calvin taking it to the opposite extreme from Pelagius, right? In other words, denying cooperation, basically, and thus falling into a double predestination, right? And that would be Calvinism. God predestining some to glory and predestining others to hell, right? And so the Council of Trent um, condemned that view, that there's a double predestination, right? That God predestines some to help, because, I mean, that's just absurd. Why would God have that as an aim to bring about um, the condemnation, the eternal reprobation of some? And then afterwards, so that would be another step, and Council of Trent also defined or, or stated that grace can be resisted, right, against Calvinism. And then in the 17th century, Jansenism was a form of Calvinism kind of in Catholic clothing within the church, and so that gave a new opportunity for um, God's universal self will to be highlighted still more. And that was um, the condemnation of the Jansenist idea that um, some are not saved. Big, let me read the exact thing so I don't get it wrong. Some of God's commandments cannot be observed by just men with the strength they have in the present state, even if they wish and strive to observe them, nor do they have the grace that would make observance possible, right? Some people are simply condemned because they didn't get the grace. All right, so that's condemned, you can't say that. And so this is why we have to hold that God gives sufficient grace to all to be saved. All right, so that was another kind of step forward. And then in the 19th century, Pius IX um, taught that there can be invincible ignorance. In other words, an ignorance of Christ and the church and the necessity of being baptized that could be inculpable and wouldn't be incompatible with somebody being saved by desire, right? And that's where we get the doctrine of baptism of desire. So the 19th century is a key step there, even though Thomas had talked about it centuries before. And then in Vatican II, right, these things taught more clearly. So Gaudium had space saying, since Christ died for all men, and since the ultimate vocation of man, in fact, is one, we ought to believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with the Paschal mystery, right? So we have to hold that. Every person can um, attain salvation if they cooperate, right? That means they're given operative graces that are sufficient, but their cooperation or non-cooperation is 
um, that's what's ours. And then Jampol II, um, in um, his encyclical on the church's missionary man. So why does the church therefore have to be missionary? Precisely because um, the mission of the church makes it far easier, right? Because it becomes explicit. So much better to know that we've been loved in this way, right? That God has become man for us and died for us so that we can love him back, right? So the missionary mandate isn't that without it, no one would be saved, but that without it, far fewer would be saved, right? And salvation would be, Sanctity would be much more difficult to, as well because love is excited by knowing, right? What, so anyway, in this encyclical he says, for those who tragically are outside, right, the, having heard the church's um, proclamation, salvation in Christ is accessible by a grace which while having a mysterious relationship to the church doesn't make them formally part of the church but enlightens them in a way accommodated to their spiritual and material situation. All right, so on the basis of this talk, hopefully we can understand that better. What, what kind of grace would that be? That enlightenment accommodated to their spiritual and material situation. Right, that would be an operative grace that he's giving to them. This grace comes from Christ. It is the result of his sacrifice. It is communicated by the Holy Spirit. Right, it's coming. Christ merited that on Calvary for all. And it enables each person to attain salvation through his or her free cooperation. But of course, it also follows that some could fail to attain salvation by not cooperating. And so it's not the fault of the divine archer. He's prepared all the graces, right? but it would be the fault of the arrow that resists the trajectory given. And so in conclusion, um, I've tried to show that this distinction between operative and cooperative grace um, is really crucial in helping to understand a lot of the key questions in life, right? And the key questions that all of us have with regard to, to God's plan and our part in it and his part in it and the primacy of his part, but the reality of our part, right? And I think it, it helps us to see um, how the two opposing heresies are both out of bounds, right? In other words, so Pelagianism denying really the existence of an operative grace, right? All grace would be cooperative. And Lutheranism and Calvinism and Jansenism denying the very possibility of cooperative grace. Right? And so it's like falling off the mountain on opposite sides. And this um, makes sense, therefore, of our lives, right? Which play out precisely in these glorious moments of receiving something that we didn't produce and then the the grind or the grit or the day-to-day, -day, and it's really beautiful, right? The beauty of the ordinary life, right? In which grace continues to play out, even though we don't have epiphany experiences, but precisely in the cooperation of day-to-day -day life, right? Made possible, all of it, by grace. All right, so I'm gonna leave it there. And I think we take a break now and then have questions. <laughs>